0: So why, if we have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are of the same substance, equal in power and glory, why do we emphasize Jesus so much, the Son so much? Why is it that, and Scripture seems to place him forefront. And even we've said over and over again, Jesus is the answer to pretty much every question. Why is that? Because he's the mediator. The Christ, the mediator, the one the Father has ordained to stand between a holy, righteous God and sinful people, to bear the sins, to be the mediator who bridges that gap between fallen man and infinite holy God. I think I, I know I've told you this at Family Camp the speaker told us that Jesus is the answer to every question. So I saw a little post on the Family Camp uh, Facebook page today. Someone had taken a picture of a math test that their child had had in school. And in the math problem, the child writes, Jesus is the answer to every question. The teacher writes back, that may be true most of the time, but not for this question. (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes, right? Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm one hundred thirty-five. Psalm one thirty-five. We're going to read the psalm to uh, read the psalm, and then uh, make a few points about the psalm. Again, Psalm one thirty-five, and you'll see the history being emphasized again, along with the name of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever, your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Here we end this reading from God's Word. Technically, Psalm 135 is not one of the Hallel Psalms, and those Hallel Psalms are a group of Psalms uh, read in Jewish synagogues uh, at certain times during the year, uh, and... uh, it's, it's usually from Psalm 113, I think, to Psalm 118. Are called It's called the Great Hallel in Jewish circles, Jewish uh, tradition. But there are many psalms uh, outside of those psalms of 113 through 118 that begin and end with these words, praise the Lord, or in Hebrew, hallel, hallelujah, praise to the Lord, praise to Yahweh, uh, that is, it, it's interesting that, you know, these Psalms that talk about praising the name of the Lord, we have followed a, a, if I may, a superstitious tradition by substituting the words the Lord for the actual Hebrew word Yahweh. We are to praise the name, and then we immediately obscure the name by substituting other words. I, I think we I'm waiting for a Bible translation to actually have the, the, the nerve to uh, accurately present that. We are to praise and honor and magnify the name and not hide it because of some superstition that it's somehow not in keeping with God's holiness to pronounce his name. He revealed his name for us to trust in it, to know something about him, and then to obscure it seems to be counter to that purpose. We are to praise the name of the Lord because the name reveals essential truth about God, his self-existence. We are to praise and honor and magnify the name of the Lord because that name is pleasant to us. To those who trust in the Lord, the name and what it teaches us about the nature of God— is pleasant. It's a foundational truth that we trust in this God who cannot and will not change because he has all existence in himself, not dependent on anything else. That is a comforting truth uh, that he is our God and we are his people. It is a truth that stands behind that statement that we referred to before, that The son praying to the father or uh, explaining his work says, All that the father gives to me will come to me, and I will lose none of them. He cannot lose. By the way, when you're reading the headlines and you're really discouraged and you're just saying this world is going bananas, bonkers, pick your word. Remember... God doesn't change. Nothing changes him. His word stands. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever because he, the unchanging God, stands behind his word. Jesus wins. Look at the end of this psalm, the last several verses of this psalm, Uh, beginning in verse 19. You'll notice a progression, and the progression is significant. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. What's the significance of that progression there? Where do we start? House of Israel. What, what is that? The whole nation, right? It's the whole nation. Bless the Lord. What is the house of Aaron? It's the high priestly family. Praise the Lord. What is the house of Levi? All the priests—it's the priestly tribe—and they're singled out from among the the other tribes of Israel. Bless the Lord. Okay, now who's those who fear the Lord? You who fear the Lord—it's like that's the catch-all. It's any anybody, anyone we've forgotten. However, remember in the New Testament, uh, the Jewish tradition was Gentiles who had come to put their faith in the God of Israel, were called what? God-fearers. Those who fear the Lord. You see, there were Gentiles who trusted in God and worshipped God. And I think that's the reference here. So you you have this, this, the whole nation blesses the Lord. The high priestly family blesses the Lord. They were chosen out of the tribe of Levi. The whole tribe of Levi blesses the Lord. They were chosen out of the nation to be the the, the priesthood. And even the Gentiles who have come to know the Lord, to bless the Lord, even in the Old Testament, there were these little indicators that the good news of God's promises— And the blessings of his salvation would not be limited to Israel. But all through their history, there was provision made for Gentiles to come in and express their faith in the Lord, becoming God-fearers. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The Lord dwells in Jerusalem, the temple is his throne. The temple is the place where he dwells and is worshipped. The temple, uh, uh, as his glory came down at the dedication of the temple, it was the place where he met with his people. Today that temple is in you and me. Because he has come and made his tabernacle, he has tabernacled, he has dwelt in us, among us, and in us. You are the temple, a living temple being built up on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, let's back up. I'm not taking this in order. As you can see, we've looked at the end, and I wanted to emphasize that this Paul to praise the Lord is a universal call. It's a call specifically to those who trust in the Lord, Israel, Aaron, Levites, the God-fearing uh, people, that they are to praise the Lord and bless the Lord. It is a call to worship that is to, meant to, for all of these people. There's more, of course, in the psalm. I want you to look specifically at verses 4 through Well, because, again, in keeping with that theme of history, history is the canvas on which God paints the portrait of his covenant faithfulness. History is the canvas upon which God paints the portrait of his covenant faithfulness. And so in verses 4 through 12, we find these words. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. Think back to the call to Abraham, calling Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, uh, and and God telling him, I will show you a place that I will give to your descendants after you. Uh, He chose Jacob. He chose the house of Israel for himself as his own possession. Then in verse 5, the psalmist begins a, a, a kind of meditation on the sovereignty, the greatness of God. And again, history plays the role of demonstrating the sovereignty of God. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. He is supreme. He is above all other beings, angelic beings, archangels, regular angels. We don't know a lot about those angels, but we do know that God is supreme, and he is above all. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deep. It used to be in classic Reformed theology that when you talked about the sovereignty of God, you divided that topic into two parts. One, his sovereign will. The second part is sovereign power. When the psalmist says he does whatever he wants, that whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. That's really the division here. Whatever the Lord pleases is his sovereign will. Whatever he does is the expression of his sovereign power, accomplishing his will. Is there anything too hard for God? God is powerful to do all his holy will. It's in our children's catechism. That's part of the children's catechism. God is sovereign. God is powerful. His power is sufficient to do all his holy will. It's a way of stopping those ridiculous questions. Could God make a rock so big that he couldn't move it? It's a stupid question. I'm sorry, I'm being blunt. It's a stupid question. God can accomplish all his will. That should end the discussion basically right there. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who make lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He he controls nature. He controls the weather, the storm. So, no, we know that the weather is the product of different, you know, convection currents and evaporation and temperature shifts and so forth. It all affects our weather and whether you believe in, in global warming or whatever, It's all part of our weather patterns, and those are all things in nature. God's not involved in that. Oh, yes, he is. The psalmist looks behind the processes of nature to see the sovereign hand of God in providence. The fact that the sun rises predictably every morning is because God upholds the universe. The fact that we can actually study nature and understand the patterns in nature is because a sovereign God upholds the world in his hand. And just as he created it, he upholds it by the word of his power. We look at nature differently than unbelievers. We look at the natural phenomenon and see the evidence of God's hand. And therefore, nature itself should be the doxology, the opening doxology of our day. We live in a, a place where well, you can see where we live through the window up there. Kind of, the shade is a little down. And did I mention it's about 20 degrees cooler there? Uh, but you can, you know, we look out our back, our back window and we, we look out a meadow and a mountains and the sky. No June gloom in Big Bear. Did I mention it's cooler? Oh, no. <laughs> we look out there, and every morning is a doxology because every morning is evidence of God's hand. Do you realize what a blessing it is to look at nature that way? The people who reject God look at nature as simply the, the operation of, of mysterious natural forces with no purpose. No guiding hand, no purpose, no glory. We know who holds clouds and the lightning and the wind. Then the psalmist moves to God's providence over his people, for his people. Our confession of faith says that there is a a special providence that God has for his church in the guiding and protecting of his church. And here we see evidence of that. We see the testimony of that. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Today, we look back in history and the redemptive work of Christ, the crucifixion, well, actually his life lived perfectly, his crucifixion as the unspotted perfect lamb who provides an atonement for us, his resurrection in which he conquers death, his ascension. We group all of those events together in the in the uh, the ministry of Christ, we look back in history at, at that as the great redemptive act. If you were living in the time of David, about one thousand BC, you would the great redemptive act for you would be the deliverance from Egypt. It was to be remembered always. It was the it was the Passover. What makes this night special, Father? The son would ask the Jewish father. What makes this night different than all other nights? And the father would explain the story of Passover. That was the great redemptive act of God for the Jewish people. For us, it focuses on Christ. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. It's the same truths, updated and brought forward into the time of the New Testament. And they, again, specifically dealing with Pharaoh in Egypt and also then taking over the land of Canaan, standing out as, in several places, these two kings who refused to allow Israel to cross their lands, even though Moses and the Israelites were going to pay them, For the food and water they used and promised to stay on the road uh, through their country, these two kings refused and then brought out their armies to attack Israel. They were defeated and their lands were taken by Israel. If they want to pay for the food and water, let them. That should have been the lesson. We move on also then uh, from the, the study of God's providence illustrated in history to the supremacy of God over the idols of the nations. The supremacy of God over the idols of the nations. I'm going to read a passage to you. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it illustrates the foolishness Of worshiping idols. First of all, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, God says this I am the Lord, that is my name. Notice the emphasis there. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This This is what the Bible means when it tells us that God is a jealous God, He does not share His glory with others. If Israel is likened like the church is as the bride of God, he does not share his bride with others. He does not share worship with idols. Just as a wife is bound to her husband in, fidel, in, in faithfulness, so God's people are bound to him to worship him and him alone. You shall have no other gods before me. A couple of chapters later, God speaks through Isaiah and illustrates the foolishness of idol worship. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man. With the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. Yes, eye roll. It's like your teenage daughter will. He, and the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, "Deliver me, for you are my God." They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes. Notice that implication: God has shut their eyes. He has abandoned them to their own idol worship. He has allowed them to to be blind to the truth and so worship idols. To know the true and living God and to worship him requires an act of grace on God's part to enlighten us. I was talking with Matt about John Calvin before, truly remarkable person, in his sermons and in his, common, uh, in, in his institutes. He talks about the human heart being a factory of idols. It it is constantly making idols, a factory of idols. And he also says those who worship idols, this is the first time I actually read Calvin's Institutes and found the word blockhead. Actually, the translation says they are blockish. Those who worship idols are blockish. What he means, of course, is that they have the sensitivity to reality of a block of wood. The same block of wood, by the way, that they've carved into an idol. Hang on to that thought, because we're going to come back to that. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Well, the answer actually is, if God does not open your eyes, you will. As foolish as it is, you will. So here's where I want you to remember what this passage says. In the opening chapter of the book of Romans, Paul writes about the condition of the human race. i go ahead and turn there because we're going to trace a little of that down through this passage. Romans chapter 1. The passage begins, actually, in uh, in verse 18, a new paragraph, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice what Paul says here, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Well, stop there. What's the foolishness of idol worship? You make a, you take a block of wood, you cut it in half. Part of it, you you cook your food and warm yourself, and and. You say, I've seen the fire, I'm warmed, I'm satisfied, but in the other half you carve into an idol, bow down to it, pray for deliverance. It's foolishness, but you do it because you are blind. Paul, writing in Romans 1, says this, You are also foolish because you wake up every morning and you see in front of your eyes and your ears hear all the evidence By the things that God has made, they hear all and see all the evidence of God's being, His power, His goodness. You see all of that evidence and you deliberately suppress it. And you turn and worship the creature rather than the creator. And you make idols in the form of human beings. God created man in his image, and the idol worshiper wants to return the favor by creating a god in his image. You worship creatures rather than the creator. You're just as foolish and blockish as the ancient person who worshipped a block of wood, and you're doing the same thing. It's still foolishness. Paul adds something to that. It's not only foolish, it is deliberate foolishness. You deliberately suppress the knowledge of God that is openly displayed before you. And the end result here, or at least so far as we've read in Romans 1, is that you are without excuse for not worshiping God. You are without excuse if you do not worship God. But there is a judgment. Notice, that, remember how this passage started. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And as Paul continues through this passage, uh, I'm picking up uh, in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's a parallel between the description of the idol worshiper in Isaiah's passage and the description of this person who worships idols in Romans chapter 1. But here comes the judgment of God, the the wrath of God that is revealed. Here it comes in verse 34. Therefore, God gave them up in in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, and he describes uh, then. And then skipping down to verse uh, 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Idol factory is inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Have a wonderful day. Isn't that that encouraging? But that's Paul's summary of lost humanity, of humanity untouched by the saving grace of God. But notice in three places in this passage, Paul says, God gave them over. Uh, Verse uh, 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, and so forth. What is man's idol today? I've said this before. I have to keep repeating it. Someday it'll be on the test and you'll remember it. Man's idol today is himself. We have created the perfect idol, self. When Paul says God gave them up to or over to, notice what God is giving them over to. Oh, and by the way, the Bible also tells us, Psalm 135, other places, those who worship these gods become like them. When Paul says that God gave them over to, he's basically saying they are becoming their idol, which is self. God is abandoning them to their own desires and lusts. Taking off the restraints. They refuse to recognize him and honor him as God. He takes off the restraints and allows them to pursue in an unfettered, unstopped way. Their own lusts and desires. and brothers and sisters, before the final judgment, that is the that is the most terrible judgment God can execute on a people. Before the final judgment is to allow a people unrestrained pursuit of their desires. Now you might say, Pastor, that sounds like what we're experiencing today. Yes, what we're experiencing today is God handing them over to their desires. And look what's happening. They refuse to recognize the reality of God. God allows them to pursue their own depraved desires. And what we see played out in front of us today, in a striking way, is what happens when God does that. We, we are tempted to say, look at this, God is going to judge us because of this, and that is not untrue, that is true. But the thing that you are pointing out as a reason for God's judgment is itself a judgment, is itself a judgment. Now, let me ask you, what should a Christian's response be to that? Actually, I don't know that there's a particularly correct answer because at different times we find different things in the Bible. We find imprec- imprecatory Psalms where the psalmist says, Lord, send the judgment, send the fire. We're done. And there are times when that might be appropriate. There are times when we will be angry. There are times when we will be confused. There are times also when we should be sorrowful. The end of this path is absolute destruction. God himself, speaking to a people who are stubborn and hard-hearted, who who keep worshiping idols until they are taken away into captivity. He says in Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he turn, repent, and live. Can you look at the depravity of our world and still say that with God? Judgment is coming, but I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So what do you do? You speak, pray, you return kindness for anger. You don't respond as the world responds to you. You demonstrate the love and mercy of Christ to a sinful world knowing that if they do not repent, judgment, the final judgment, awaits. Knowing this, Paul ends that, knowing this, that God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they still not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We live today in an age where it is expected of us to give approval to depravity. Are you describing the woke culture? Yeah. Yeah. It is expected of us to approve depravity. And what is prideful about June? What is to be proud? Proud of depravity? Proud of rebellion? Is that what we're proud of? but you better get on that pride bandwagon. Better fly your rainbow. I read an article in the news today, an opinion piece. It was aimed at churches. Churches need to fly their pride rainbow flags all year long. I think we missed that memo somehow. I'm, That's what's in store for those who worship idols. And today's idol is the idol of self. Until that day of judgment, we are to pray. We are to witness. We are not to be intimidated. We're not to be turned aside. And that's what persecution really is trying to make us do, is is ostracize us from, uh, from our society so that we are viewed as outsiders and a threat and we must therefore be silenced. But we cannot be silenced because we have a mission. Jesus has not sent us a new letter that says, okay, in view of the current situation, the Great Commission is suspended No, it's not. We're still going to disciple and teach and witness. How will they hear? Unless someone is sent to preach the good news to them. But they're so far gone, Pastor. You don't know what we deal with. Yes, I do. They're so far gone. They're beyond help. Well, tell that to a man named Saul of Tarsus, who says, I was the worst of sinners. But so that God could display his mercy in me, he saved me. No. We pray, we witness we are not intimidated and we will not be silenced. And in God's time, He will either save some and He will judge those who remained without repentance in their sin. So the psalm doesn't end on that rather downer note. It ends with, praise the Lord. Even in his righteous judgments, we are to praise the Lord. Pray. Heavenly Father, your word teaches us reality. Our experience in the world teaches us that man is constantly trying to escape the reality that surrounds him. And this is the source of so many troubles and problems that we face today. Lord, we pray that you would protect your church in these troubled times. We pray that you would not allow us to become embittered and hateful people, but rather we should worship you and we should pursue the commission that you have given to your church And we should pray for the salvation of the lost and we should keep doing what we have been doing for 2,000 years. Our feet are planted on a rock and our rock is immovable and we too should be steadfast in the purpose for which you have saved us and have sent us forth. We pray for your daily grace that we might indeed do this and be faithful to your calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.